0: Welcome. This is the special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, waging the all-out struggle for truth right here on Revolution.Radio, the greatest of free speech networks every Friday evening. Go to Revolution.Radio to listen to this show and, of course, to support this great network. My website, by the way, is KevinBarrett.Substack.com, or you can just go to TruthJihad.com and find your way to my Substack and all of the other rubrics where I post my work. Well, today we have a uh, an incendiary show as usual. The second hour will be a discussion about the upcoming midterm elections. Rolf Lindgren, otherwise known as Rolf Stradamus, will be predicting the outcomes. And we all know that Rolf is eagerly awaiting the return of Trump. So, we'll see how likely that is and I, I bet he'll be predicting a red tsunami but i hate to give that away i'll let him come on in an hour and tell you that himself and then alan stevo the author of face masks in one lesson will discuss how you can run for office and win even if you have the kinds of non-mainstream ideas that we talk about on this show and there are some non-mainstream people saying Outside the mainstream box, things who do get elected. Donald Trump was one, and you know Marjorie Taylor Greene, and uh, there are probably a few others. So, if you want to know how to do that, maybe we can actually uh, move the chains a little bit through the electoral system. If you listen to Alan Stevo in the second hour. All right, let's get on to the first hour. Here is actually something new on the nine eleven truth front. I don't do nine eleven stuff every week because, well there isn't really a lot of brand new material on this false flag of the century. It's kind of been solved. David Ray Griffin solved half of it back in 2004 with the new Pearl Harbor. And I would say that people like Christopher Bolin uh, solved the other half, uh, Lauren Guyano and so on. Uh, So we kind of have a pretty good sense of of what went down with 9-11. However, not so many people have gotten a larger historical context involving a series of possible Israeli false flags that essentially created the whole story of the so-called war on terror out of whole cloth after suspected high 9-11 perp Benjamin Netanyahu convened the JCIT, the Jerusalem Conference on International Terrorism, back in 1979. So the, what we're talking about in this first hour with Bruce Beard, we'll sort of break some new ground. And in particular, by pointing out that Russia's 9-11, those uh, horrific apartment bombings of September 1999, fit the pattern of Israeli mini-nuke false flags. So this is uh, fresh meat for the 9-11 Truth Movement, and it's great to bring on Bruce Baird. He's a retired engineer, professor, and a good guy. met him at the Bay Area Film Festival, I think, a couple of times. And, uh, well, here he is to tell us about this new take on the so-called War on Terror. So, hey, uh, welcome, Bruce. How are you doing? Hi, Kevin. How are you doing? Yeah, it's great to have you. And uh, you're coming through loud and clear. So, It's kind of a counter narrative here in a lot of ways, what you're saying, because we hear quite a lot from both mainstream and uh, alternative sources that the Russian apartment bombings, otherwise known as Russia's 9-11, were a Putin false flag. It inaugurated a state of emergency to bring Putin into Power and he was able to put an end to the Yeltsin era of drunken incompetence and built, rebuild a strong centralized Russian state on the back of these apartment bombings. Uh, of course, he then you know directed this uh, horrific war in Chechnya. So. The anti-Russia side of the mainstream actually kind of likes that story. They like it a lot better than they like the uh, 9-11 story. And uh, and a lot of folks in the 9-11 truth community also suspect that Putin, or at least some hardliners in the KGB who wanted a a uh, strong state, might have been behind that. But you're arguing now in the 71-tweet Twitter thread that it could have actually been the Israelis. So tell us about that, why, uh, why you think that, why they would benefit.
1: Well, uh, first, I just want to add it uh, to you that I look back at all the tweets I could find going back to 2013 to see how they responded to uh, or how they used this idea, this Russian 9-11 and Putin pulled a false flag. And I found unanimous uh, on Twitter, which usually people are divided on Twitter, unanimous opinion that it was Putin pulling a false flag back in September 1999. And that's what got me like, like whoa, unanimous? It's like nobody's questioning. And of course. In the last year, especially, people have used it to accuse Putin of doing everything, saying he, he pulled a false flag back in September 1999. He always pulls false flag. So everything he accuses Ukraine of doing or planning to do, it's really Putin pulling a false flag. And I said, okay, that's pretty naive, especially since a long time ago. Actually, like, I think back in December 2018, I came across Dmitry Kalasov's book, The 9-11 Anthology, and he has a little section in there that he talks about all of these false flags uh truck bombs and uh and he, he talked about Volgodonsk which was this big explosion they had in this town like 600 miles south of Moscow uh that left this big crater and he said uh that was evidence that this um, that this was a nuclear explosion it wasn't like they said it wasn't the uh a truck bomb out in front it could only have been caused by a nuclear bomb a mini nuke or micro nuke actually he said it was somewhere between 100 and 300 tons so that's a pretty big micro nuke but uh he didn't say it was israel that was behind it he, he kept referring to the quote unquote so-called good guys i think he he he, he didn't really go after israel he, he tended to want to think of some kind of freemasons like the people behind the scenes who were doing these things and uh but it definitely it wasn't putin it was the good guys who had pulled this false flag to blame it on the Chechen Muslims to then kick off this uh, second Chechen war, which actually had kind of started before uh, to some degree. But uh, I knew that way back when. And there are people always talk about now that this was Putin's false flag. And I said, uh, no, it can't be just simply that. It's got to be uh, something more than that, uh, because I didn't think that. They would have nuked this apartment building back in September 1999. So uh, I had already in the meantime done a lot of research on um, mysterious truck bombings, supposed truck bombings, terrorist truck bombings that left large craters, disproportionate craters. And I had done a lot of research going back wherever I could find information on uh, explosive cratering where people, you know, military people or academic people have experimented with uh, uh, explosives to blast craters and above ground craters, below ground craters, nuclear craters, non-nuclear craters, uh, everything. And I collected a lot of information to get to the um, understanding of what causes craters. And in fact, how you can like forensically take information uh, of dimensions of a crater in the ground and figure out What kind of explosive, how big explosive, where the explosive would have been placed? And so I've been using Excel, you know, to plot all this data that I collected, which I think goes beyond anything that I've seen uh, in any report or in terms of the number of of tests that I use. Wow. A a a
0: crater spreadsheet.
1: I do. It's not that many. Maybe it's, um, you know, 50 or whatever tests that they've done that actually would fall into the category of being able to analyze a crater but especially things that are slightly below the ground or slightly above the ground. Those are the critical things because truck bombs by their very nature are above ground. And generally, you know, they have to be, you know, the truck bed is three to four feet high, you know, in a normal type of like a truck and the, the explosives, you know, if they're high explosives like TNT or ANFO or whatever are going to be on top of that. And, uh, I discovered through all these studies, uh, that, um, And actually, I knew this before from the work of Dmitry Kalasov and also Joe Viles and other people who had said that, you know, truck bombs like this do not blast craters. And I was able to confirm that with all of my analysis that truck bombs like this do not blast craters. They compress the ground somewhat underneath it, but they don't blast a crater that's say six foot deep or eight foot deep or whatever. They just can't do that. And all these terrorist explosives, you know, terrorist incidents are blamed on truck bombs they always left nice big craters they blasted them and so i had to question every one of them and it's, so i started it's, it's
0: funny it's always muslims responsible for the truck bombs it seems almost always oh uh, yeah just, oh Columbus yeah was,
1: well not i also studied uh, in britain in the 1990s where they blamed them on the ira i did a whole thread on on those bombs there's like four major bombs in uh, manchester and london And I said, "Yeah, there's no way." And officially, the IRA was to blame. But there said, "There's no way the IRA did that." Then the, the, you know, so I I was able to uh, study a bunch of different incidents that happened and and say, "Yeah, no, these were not truck bombs." But I didn't really have a sense of, you know, or I didn't have information per se on like who did that. Um, And although Joe Viles. Um he was the one who really impressed me. I, I, I found uh, he was an Australian online investigator who died back in 2005. But he started putting these online articles back in 1990. He looked at the British bombs in 1990 and he suspected those were mini nukes back then. I said, whoa. Uh, he also did a real telling articles on the 2002 Bali bombings which he deliberately, he, he went into great detail identifying it as the, a Demona micro-nuke, that this was an Israeli nuke, and it was used to, uh, as a, a terrorist extortion to force Australia, because a lot of the people who were killed in Bali were Australians on vacation there, and he said it was used to force Australia to fall in line with Israel's war on terror. And uh, so I said, well, okay, well, that's interesting. Very long article, and now these are not online anymore. These are still his, like, website but you can find them on archive.org on the wayback machine so they haven't been scraped from that yet and and so i started tweeting those a lot saying well this is very very interesting you never hear about joe viles very much and then in 2004 he did one on the hariri assassination and he's doing it like a reporter he's doing it like within days you know of these incidents happening he's going through all this analysis i don't know where he's getting the information but when i tried to would try to analyze it, i had some questions some things I would question that he would say, like he knew a little too much, but that I wasn't certain about. But uh, it was like, OK, he's, he's on something with this. Mm-hmm. So uh, and then he died in 2005. <laughs> OK. And yeah, that was kind of sudden why he right
0: died. at the key moment in the so you know, as these series of terror attacks, the post 9-11 false flags yeah. are are kind of blossoming. He never and, did 9-11 they,
1: as far as I know, but uh yeah.
0: But yeah, you know
1: he, I don't know who he was or anything about him except they did these articles and they're very interesting and I've tweeted them quite a bit with the the links that they're all on archive.org. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I it was
0: interesting how it, uh, a whole bunch of these post 9/11 false flags did involve explosions that were highly implausible that is they couldn't really be attributed to what the official story tried to attribute them to. Um, well, of course, the, the destruction of the twin towers is a huge example of that. But likewise, in in Bali, as Joe Viles uh, wrote, also in Madrid and in London. In both of those cases, the uh, bombings could, you know, for instance, in London, the bombs had clearly been placed underneath the carriages because they blasted the metal upward, and the official story was that bombers in back with backpacks had uh, had done it. And and so it was interesting that Joe Viles was doing that. in are talking about
1: six six and is that what they call it? 7.7, 7.7, right. 2005. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, now I wasn't, I was tending to focus on um, bombs or terror, you know, explosions that left craters. Uh, because to me, that was solid type evidence, even though they may have disputes about how big the crater was or um, details, but they have photos of it a lot of times. And then somebody went and officially measured it. And sometimes I might not trust those dimensions or, you know, did they know exactly how you're supposed to, measure a crater because you're supposed to measure them not from the top of the the lip uh the rim but from the the depth and the diameter from the surface the original surface level so sometimes there's questions like that but i you know there is some uh a lot of play in the data it's not you know it's like perfect fits to a lot of the correlations i was coming up with but it's pretty close to be able to take the especially would start with the uh the ratio of the crater diameter they call it the apparent crater diameter and the apparent crater depth and the ratio of diameter to depth is a pretty good tool to kind of pinpoint, uh, pinpoint you know what you know, um, how uh, whether it was an above ground or below ground uh, explosion, and then from there you can kind of get a sense of how big the bomb would be, and uh, and uh, you know for a lot of a lot of incidents like these, um, these ones that Joe Viles uh, studied, and you know that I was coming up with pretty much the same kind of uh explosion at the same kind. We're talking about shallowly buried micro nukes like around uh ten to twenty uh tons of TNT equivalent. In other words, they would have a blast effect, a cratering effect equivalent to ten to twenty tons of TNT. But it's a very small device. It may be like fifty pounds and it, it can fit right on the surface of the street and uh it's it's underground. It's a few inches, you know, it's a foot or whatever. They, uh, vials and the, and Kalisov said it were placed in crater i mean in sewer pipes, which it might be uh you know i mean that's a re- that's a reasonable uh way maybe that worked but uh there was also some talk of people using uh that there were uh, people who were doing road work like in the on the uh, Hariri assassination, the, some of the locals said there were some people who have been doing road work on that same spot, you know, just days before. So maybe they did that and could plant these bombs under the street where something is supposed to happen later on. <laughs> like kill uh, Hariri and also blast a big chunk of, you know, downtown Beirut.
0: You know, let, let's, let's remind the listeners about the political circumstances there. Uh, when Hariri was murdered, Rafi Hariri, the uh, famous uh, Lebanese leader, that essentially was blamed on Syria and it was used as an excuse to try to force Syria out of Lebanon. And Syria had sort of moved into Lebanon uh, to uh, after Israel's kind of failed war on, on Lebanon went south and then Syria ended up uh, having a lot of influence in Lebanon, the Israelis didn't like that. So the Israelis uh, have been wanting to overthrow the Assad-related governments in Syria for forever. and this uh, killing of Hariri, blamed on Syria, was used to force Syria out of Lebanon. And clearly the fix was in the international media, and we all knew who controls that, and the big institutions all sort of united to try to point the finger at Syria, even though the evidence was highly dubious. So that would be perfectly logical that it would be an Israeli false flag.
1: Well, and all the ones uh, in Beirut, I mean, either was Hezbollah or Iraq or Syria, and uh, yeah, those were the official explanations. Are always focused on them, and and I could I could easily, with my analysis, rule out that they would have access to these kind of micro nukes because one of the most telling things I found in spending was that they never left any radioactive, you know, radioactivity. There's no reports ever. Now, people say, "Well, oh, how could it be a nuke if it was there was no radioactivity ever reported, ever reported in any of these incidents, except there was some suspicions, maybe the 1983, the Marine barracks bombing. You know, people said there's something uh, uh, about that or um, but uh, it's, you know, it's like. Based on physics, you know, and all the empirical analysis we can have of uh, basic laws of physics that we know that the official story can't be right and that that required it would require a much, much larger explosive uh, yield. I mean, we're talking about 10, 20 tons of it underground. That can't be high explosive. It can't be non-nuclear. It has to be nuclear just by that. But yet they never left any non-nuclear any nuclear signature of like radioactivity. So most people would de- dismiss it. But one of the things that I also did in my research, not in this thread, but in many other threads that I've done is um, explore these ideas of these clean nukes. And this is uh, what Viles also talked about. He called them stealth nukes. Uh, and he went into some detail talking about how Israel had developed these these at, at the Mona, these stealth nukes that would not leave any, measurable signature or like of radioactivity. And that's the kind of stuff that I do disagree with him about. I, it, some of that seems like it might be misinformed. But I went through and I studied most of the research that's publishable. I mean, it published was in the United States, especially at uh, Lawrence Livermore. And they published some stuff. And the New York Times published this. And the Washington Post talked about it back in the 70s of doing these bombs. They called them minimum residual radioactivity or radiation bombs uh reduce radio, uh, residual radiation. Um, the residual radiation is what is left after uh, an explosion, after like the first you know, few microseconds or whatever. They leave this radiation in the ground and any of the bomb parts that are radiated and they can have long, long half-lives and it's quite measurable. With a regular Geiger counter, you can measure them. But um, the, uh, they were designing these bombs in the 70s actually going back into the 60s, designing these bombs uh, that would be called clean nukes to fight the Cold War. The idea was uh, you're fighting a war in Eastern Europe and uh, Germany doesn't want you. You know, all these nukes are on German soil. They don't want you nuking Germany to fight the Soviets. So they started trying to develop these uh, clean nukes that wouldn't do that. Also, there was a lot of interest in blasting craters for peaceful purposes, construction purposes like the canals and ports and uh, highways and uh the maybe even demolitions of skyscrapers uh yeah well um there's some talk about that <laughs> i think yeah that's what i think uh dmitry kalisov talked a lot about that these uh, required plan to be able to take down a tower you know some t- tall skyscraper like the sears building in chicago or the twin towers and uh, i don't know about that that's the kind of thing that I'm, i i don't know but uh, it's certainly that they somebody I could conceive somebody have actually you know, thought of that, you know, that would be a, a good use for that, they might think. But the problem was is that they always left horrible problems with radiation, uh, you know, and they eventually abandoned all those uh, uh, plans to uh, use them for peaceful purposes. So but still they developed them. And um, and so the, the knowledge is out there and. A lot of it was focused on what was called the neutron bomb. These are called third generation nukes. And the first one, the one that got a lot of attention was the neutron bomb, which the idea was that you could tailor the output of a of a nuclear bomb to to produce certain types of output. Not you would still have a huge blast, whatever you did, but you didn't have to have the radiation. You could um, the neutron bomb would just produce neutrons, which could cause problems. But if it detonated high in the sky, uh, these fast neutrons would kill the people and wouldn't leave much residual radioactivity in the ground. And, you know, and the would leave the, and leave the no,
0: buildings intact. leave the buildings intact.
1: So that was – the, the point wasn't – that wasn't really the issue for him. The idea was you wouldn't have this residual radiation. So you could go in there. These people are going to die a horrible death. It might take a couple of days because fast neutrons are just going to go through them. And, and so that was the idea. But tailored nukes, third-generation nukes, and they just kept working on it. What can we do? We can make it do this. We can make it do that. And they'd publish this information and get you know, reprinted in big papers. And one of them was clean nukes, was minimum residual radiation nukes. And, uh, and Lawrence Livermore, back in 1979, in their, official, in their official magazine said, we've done it. We've made it. And there was you know, quite a bit of talk about that in the 80s even, too. And then it sort of disappeared. Yeah, but but there- and that, that leads to the question.
0: What, what do you think about the debate in the 9 11 truth movement around this? The Journal of 9 11 Studies published a couple of articles debunking the theory that mini nukes could have been involved in the demolition of the Twin Towers. And the main line of argument in those articles, I believe one was by Stephen Jones, uh, a, a physicist and who is well aware of nuclear issues. And he, he argued, as I recall, that the slam dunk argument against the use of nuclear uh, demolition on the Twin Towers was that there wasn't notable radiation. You know, there, was no, there was not nearly enough radiation around that there would have had to have been otherwise. And that entire line of argument seemed to rest on the premise that there's no such thing as these uh, reduced radiation type uh, bombs. So and those on the other side have argued that people like Stephen Jones must have been arguing in bad faith because they must know full well that such uh, technology has been around since the 70s. So what's your take on that?
1: Well, I've tweeted quite a lot about Stephen Jones. I've analyzed the heck out of everything he's ever said. <laughs> All this stuff. So um, I, I'm on the come down on the side of the people that you know, I wouldn't trust a single thing he said. Um, And unfortunately, all those people, the 9/11 Truth Movement, especially a 9/11 Truth, the Arkansas engineer, which I'm a, I'm one of the signers. I was an engineer in my first career, have bachelor's degree in chemical engineering. So I signed it because that was my first foray into 9/11 Truth. Was hey, I'm gonna sign this thing. And uh, but the more I dug into it, the more I realized uh, they're not asking the right questions. I kept asking too many questions. That was my problem as as an engineer, and also as a historian. I, I keep asking questions and questions. And so I've written a lot of tweets um, that have challenged almost everything. I challenge the whole nanothermite thing. I just, you know, I, I want them to come at me, come at me, you know, argue what I'm saying. So I have, it's like even with this Russian uh, 9-11 thread, I tend to come up with explanations that neither side <laughs> of the debate likes very much. So, you know, neither the the official narrative, you know, and the debunkers of the these people challenging them. I tend to like look at the evidence and come up with something that's contrary to both of them. But the nine eleven 11 is so complex. I mean, I've tackled parts of it. I, I, I you know, nine the A nine eleven truth they focus just on the work, you know, Tower one and two and seven and i you know i did a whole thread on world trade center six if you just look at world trade mm-hmm. center six it was just this very strange thing with these two cylindrical holes right through the middle of it and you know you yeah, couldn't the even cookie cuts yeah. Yeah, yeah well i did a whole thread on it and i came up with a very different explanation and i threaded i actually i was looking for something what could possibly it wasn't just they weren't perfect cylindricals they were scalloped they were like yeah, so well that looks like something taking out You know little circles and coming together and the whole thing i mean and i found this i think cbs went down underground there uh and we had these cameras and they were looking at stuff down below i said look at that you know what's going on with this i mean people talk about those uh beams you know the um the columns that were cut you show pictures of it and people say oh those those were after that was part of demolition to cut those beams like at a 45 degree angle to move well cbs had a documentary where he her down underneath world trade center six And they're showing one of those columns cut like that. And it's like, whoa, okay, I've never seen that, like underground, you know, and all kind of weird stuff that was happening down in in the the basement of that building. So, but but would people pay attention to that? No. (laughs) You know, that's World Trade Center 6. We don't care about World Trade Center. Well, you know, if you want to explain what happened on 9-11, you can't focus on just this, this, this. You got to try to explain the whole thing. So that's why well, yeah, isn't, it, isn't
0: it interesting? The, the every single building with a WTC prefix was yeah. totaled, you know, right. massively totaled, and they appear to basically all have been bombed or something, some high energy bomb-like device, utterly destroyed them, and some uh, all of the non-WTC prefix buildings, some of which were much closer to the towers than some of the WTC buildings, like seven, so these these non-WTC buildings, not one of them was totaled. So something just cleanly, utterly destroyed all of the world trade center and very cleanly avoided uh causing uh serious damage to anything else that's pretty strange
1: yeah i like the um uh, i have my uh pinned tweet that i have on my uh, on my uh twitter account that has uh, a picture of like the entire world trade center complex the destruction of it like you look at it like oh my god this thing is huge and uh And it just says, you know, that's what you have to explain. (laughs) Not how this, this building come down at this free fall speed. And that one comes down like that. Like what caused, you know, two planes caused all of this, (laughs) you know, I mean, it just boggles the mind. What did it, you know, I'm sure it was nuclear. Just the amount of energy that it required would involve nuclear energy. And I think many, there are these people, you know, like Heinz Palm, I think you've had him on your show. before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, they've, they've, you know proven beyond that kind of question that n- nuclear energy was involved but how it was used that's where you know i i still am like questioning all the explanations including heinz palmer's explanation i was like um uh, i tended to actually when i started working on these um these truck bombs supposed truck bomb craters and also recently well two years ago i did this whole long Thread. Actually, I've done multiple threads on the 2020, the August 2020 Berate, Beirut blast. I've done a lot of stuff on that, and it's like that's a lot simpler. You try to explain that, if people will listen to you, challenge the official story of that, and support you know research into that, so they can just blast through those kind of uh, you know incidents, then maybe you could start looking at you know 9/11 because 9/11 is just so complex. What's going on there? Mm-hmm. Uh, but people won't even. I mean, I I tweeted this uh, this thread, and I've done. I said like every year on the anniversary of uh, the August 2020 blast, I do another long thread on it, getting deeper, more detailed. And uh, that back in 20, I mean, I did it. I think I tweeted it like just a couple of days after um, the incident. Uh, August, yeah, it was August 9th. August 4th was the was the explosion, and like five days later, I'm let this tweet, which is my pin tweet, has a picture of the. This crater that's right next to where the silos are, and you can see how big and I, and I just analyzed the hell out of that crater and left in the port of Beirut, but it's right next to my the tweet. it's right next to the blast of the of the world Trade Center I said, you know if you believe that two jet planes did that, then you'll believe that twenty seven or fifty tons of ammonium nitrate fertilizer did that, and I like that it's got like it's got like over three thousand likes and two thousand tweets uh retweets and and uh, but nobody in alternative media, nobody, nobody that I would even, you know, seriously look at that. You know, they people liked it, They tweet it. But like nobody has pursued that at all. I'm the only one I know of that pursues.
0: And of course, things. veterans today covered this extensively and was claiming it was an Israeli nuke kind of from the beginning. And uh, people like Dmitry Kalizov and Gordon Duff of Veterans Today, although he's now posting at the Intel dot com. Uh, so now I guess I'm a senior editor at VT for whatever that's worth. But but anyway, Veterans Today has been all over these uh, nuclear uh, Israeli nuclear terrorism stories.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I because I, I have had run-ins with Gordon Duff. Uh, I've had a <laughs> bit of email chains with him, and I just. I, I hope you're not having personal physical run-ins with him. No, I no, no, no. I've heard he, uh, he's made a tough guy, but uh, but he, you know, he, he he has this way of if you overlap his somewhat slightly, he says, "Oh, you're saying the same thing I did." So it was like you know, you can't say anything different than what he's already said. He's already said it before. Yeah, yeah. He has intel. intel to you know to prove it. You just have whatever you have, but that doesn't matter because he has secret intel that proves what he's saying. But the whole thing about a. Um, in, in the Beirut thing, the idea of a missile, you know, some kind of missile doing this, and and I think I've proven beyond you just can't have a missile do that kind of explosion. This was a very, it wasn't a simple, it wasn't like a, a missile penetrating the ground and doing, and creating this crater and causing a blast. This was a, a sophisticated operation that involved placing a very, very, very large nuke, like something like five kilotons of TNT, and this is, you know, something you know, we're talking about uh, 500 times as big as those mini nukes that might be used in uh, in in, Volgodonsk or whatever or, or Beirut. This is a huge nuke, placed like some hundred some feet under the ground, very precisely placed. And plus, I believe my most recent research suggests there was a second nuke, a pretty large, not that big, but another good sized nuke above ground. And that's when you look at the the last thread I did on this, when look at the video evidence of this explosion which uh, there's some images that people haven't seen but this is a this is a very i call it frankenstein's monster if you look at if you look up my tweet and look up frankenstein my call this frank it's like two explosions in one they're like but it's created this this kind of blast that you just had never seen it's never been so, so how,
0: how would they have gotten this big bomb hundreds of feet underground
1: this is this is well easy enough to do that if you have one of those core drilling machines you know in a warehouse if somebody had access and control of that, inf- that site they could do that you don't even have to be right above it you can go at an angle and I, I used to work in the oil industry so i know you can drill these holes and you have these very small little portable drills you can do this with it doesn't have to be a huge machine to do it and but precisely placed, placed and um yeah you can do that um, these these mini nukes i mean even if, even a five kiloton Nuke is not that big that you can't drill a core down there. It might I don't think they might not line it. They just go down there with bare soil down into the in the limestone. It's like limestone under the bedrock there. And you could drill it down and place it very precisely. And then I can take this forensic information that I have about craters and, you know, figure out exactly where they must have put it and how big that bomb must have been.
0: But there raises the question of motive. Uh, if you imagine Israel... Uh, going after, let's say, a sort of a a Hezbollah weapons storehouse or transition point or something like that. If they had the access to be able to drill down under it like that, it makes you wonder, you know, if they would really need to go to such an extreme. Uh, So in terms of motive for this kind of uh, event, would it be sending a message? uh, We can book you, (laughs) I suppose.
1: I think... uh this is no. This is the part that I kind of avoid, like in my tweets about who I tend to avoid. Although I did get into it with the Russian, 9 nine eleven. Yeah, but
0: you're a historian as well as an engineer, so you get to talk about that stuff.
1: No, all right. So I can also just hypothesize. But I and people have suggested uh, to me, you know, who believe that Israel was behind it, suggested reasons for it, it's like competition for the poor the Haifa versus Beirut. Uh, but you know, I look at just the evidence that. To see, when everybody what we were pinned to, you know, looking at YouTube videos on August 4th, 2020, because a lot of people had phones out there taking videos of this and they're still there. You know, you can look at these videos. But I mean, it was all like it's a show. This thing that I call a Frankenstein monster, but it's this elaborate pyrotechnic display. And. You know, we're shocked and awed by it, like I was. And like, oh, my God, just like on 9-11, shocked and awed by it. But whoever planned 9-11, this was a very deliberate thing. They wanted it to look exactly the way it looked like. These people who do this are very good at what they do. They know exactly what this thing is going to do. They, I mean, maybe they make mistakes, and it's not exactly everything they would have hoped. But they wanted the video cameras to capture exactly what was captured. And they don't – whoever does this doesn't mind if, you know, it – the explanation that officially is presented makes any sense or they're contradictory all over, which they usually are. They tell one story and then another story until one official story kind of rises. But uh, it is, uh, I think there is one mess. I think who is, well, somebody's done this already. There's maybe it was Kalasov. He talks about, yeah, he talks about one message, the message to the people, right, which is shock and awe. And then the other message is to the leaders and the true experts and the people who know what the heck it was. It was like, we did this to you. We can do it whenever we want to. <laughs> that kind of, I mean, that's all I imagine. That's yeah. the only thing I can imagine is what they're doing with this. Um, and, you know, in the meantime, you know, you blame it on Hezbollah or, because I know I talked to quite a few Lebanese people via the, you know, interested. They DM'd me, direct messaged me, whatever, as a result of these things. And they never really seemed to be that interested in how it was done or that. Um, you know whether Israel actually was the only state that had the ability to do such a thing. They they didn't really care for that very much because they really wanted to go after those corrupt politicians who've ruled. You know, they're in the hands of Israel. Yeah, that's part of it. Israel is still the great evil. You know, officially there in in Lebanon it is the the evil, but they they don't need to know that Israel did this. They much prefer that it's some corrupt officials who are responsible for. Those ammonium nitrate sacks being in there. Like, okay. Well, that actually kind of pay, plays
0: into the hands of Israel to get people, uh, you know, blaming their own leaders and uh, not rallying behind their country against Israel, yeah, but it, it sure it sounds like those, the Israeli experts, both the technicians and the uh, psyops and media types have really come a long way since the King David hotel bombing and since the Levon affair botched bombing when they tried to bomb American targets yeah. in Egypt and got caught, you know, in, if you read Thomas Suarez's book, State of Terror." which lays out how Israel was created with just this endless series of terror attacks and it's going on, you know, ever since then Um, they when they started out, it was pretty primitive. You know, a lot of these people were not really experts and it seems like they're just so devoted to to terrorism. And that's what they are. It's, you know, Israel is basically just terror, our us. And they've gotten pretty good now. They're actually, you know, doing these things that are kind of you know, hard to figure out exactly how they did them. And they are, you know, big enough that they do provide the shock and awe. And they've got total control of the Western media to put their it, story out there. And, and, and it's, it's not just
1: Western media. I think it's everywhere around the world. I don't think anybody challenging these stories.
0: Yeah, well, well, but I don't think they need to have control of a lot of the non-Western media to the extent that they control the Western media because so much of the non-Western media just picks up the story from the Western media. You know, I remember I I, I was in journalism school in Madison, Wisconsin, 1976, 1981, and John McNally was the professor dealing with the international stuff. And uh, he, he was, yeah, I mean, he wasn't a radical or anything, really, but he was just horrified by the way that the global media, especially in these third world countries, was just lapping up whatever they were getting from the West. That the, the, there was this very centralized, top-down Western control of the global media. Uh, and, and not so much because the same you know, oligarchs, these Zionist oligarchs who own the, the Western media, they don't necessarily own all of the media everywhere, although they may have invested in a fair bit of it, but they set the tone. They're, they're, they've they got that prestige from that Western media, and everybody else seems to sort of just echo it.
1: Yeah, I'm always surprised what things they're allowed to say that question these official narratives. Like, for example, I've, you know always been pressed people of the 1967 USS Liberty. You know, you could talk about that. You can see that, and they say it repeated. But I've tried to get some of those people to consider what happened in. The Marine barracks in 1983 and they won't go there. They're not going to touch that one. Really, you think Israel would do this to you back in 1967, but they wouldn't do that to the Marines in 1983. Okay. They just, you know, it's like you can talk about this. Israel, whoever the powers that be, allow that to be talked about. The Levon affair, they even admitted to it. Yes, we did that. Uh, you know, and they take great pride. I mean, I'd met some people Israelis that take great pride in some of those early. Well, they, they
0: gave years. medals to the LaFana affair terrorists uh, in, ah. what, in 2005 or so. They they denied it. They said the whole story was a big anti-Semitic uh, canard, and they kept to that for what 30, 40 years, uh, 50 years, and then in the early 2000s they sure. finally confessed and they awarded medals to the surviving terrorists who had tried to blow up American targets in Egypt and, and blame it on George the George
1: bombing. They were heroes. I mean, they took great pride in it. They said, hey, that's what we did. It, they actually, I said, I met some Israelis who, um, this guy who was involved in those, and he said, they, you know, yeah, it's terrorism, but you know what? <laughs> We're the good guys. Right? You know, bounce,
0: It has a way of bouncing back, you know, like at, at some point I, I think this, you know, you're talking about craters, Well, all of these, these craters that the Israelis have created all over the world, it's going to, it's going to come back and, and, you know, Israel is, is going to get cratered itself eventually.
1: Yeah, maybe. I don't know. But uh, um, in terms of the, um, the Russian, you know, to go back to what I found out about the Russian, uh, uh, 9 or whatever the, the apartment, there are four major apartment blocks that were heavily destroyed or, not totally. There are parts of these apartment buildings that were destroyed in the first couple of weeks of September 1999. The one I focused on was in, in Volgodonsk because it was, from all descriptions, it was the biggest blast and also left a, a crater that got a lot of attention, a photograph. And I was able to go in and take my forensic analysis and say, oh, yeah, this was uh, like an 11 ton uh, equivalent you know, TNT equivalent nuke. And it was buried just like um, half a foot under the ground, under the street surface. And um, I calculated, well, it would have taken like uh, seven tons of of tnt or not five i can't remember now exactly how many tons but i calculated how many tons of tnt it would have taken to do it they would have to it'd be impossible to imagine them putting that much tnt into the street there to blow it up it just you know you can't it won't work it certainly wouldn't work on the top of a flatbed truck and it's not going to work buried in the ground you're not going to get that much tnt in there without people noticing but this little micro nuke you know, which might be again, a minimum residual radiation, like a clean micro nuke that might weigh only a little less less than 50 pounds. Somebody could do this fairly easily. And it would cause a lot more damage than high explosives. It would cause explain all the other things, including people uh, mentioned uh, Kalasov Actually, he, he reported he knew two of these guys there who talked to him about it. And he said there was a much a perfect mushroom cloud. A fire This guy was a firefighter who knew it you know smoke clouds look like and this is uh, no, this was like a nuclear type cloud he saw and this; it was in the, like an hour before sunrise there when it blew in um, September 16th uh, 1999 and uh, you know so they it, it, a lot of what Kalisov was able to learn from people there confirmed what I at the, and what he believed except he thought it was 100 to, to 300 uh, ton nuke a much much bigger nuke because CNN slipped through like he likes this CNN actually on the first day said it was somebody said it was 100 to 300 tons and he stuck with that and in fact he used that number to try to compare that to other places so his numbers are way high in terms of the size of the bombs he thinks might have been involved in a lot of these dukings um, uh, you know interesting shootings. you know Dmitry Khalazov is it's a very uh, interesting guy you know
0: he he did uh, finger former Mossad chief Mike Harari right. as uh, bragging at a party he, according to Khalazov Uh, former Mossad, legendary former Mossad chief, Mike Harari, uh, convened a celebratory party shortly after 9-11 in, uh, was it Thailand or something? And that Dmitry Kalozov actually was there and witnessed uh, Mike Harari bragging about having participated in pulling off 9-11. So, but I don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but the thing about Dmitry Dmitry Kalozov is, is some of the stuff he says uh, strikes me as, as pretty palpably uh, bizarre and, and obviously untrue. Uh, For instance, he claims that on 9-11, the Pentagon was hit with a cruise missile fired from a submarine. Now this is, this is what the veterans today's former senior editors also believe or say they believe and so, then that that type of cruise missile uh, is nuclear capable. And the what, what what he claims is that because of this, the U.S. leadership immediately thought that whatever you know hit the twin towers uh, might have had a nuclear weapon on it, but it, but it didn't go immediately off. And so, in order to save New York. They went ahead with a built in programmed demolition device, a nuclear demolition device, which had been planted deep in the cores of the towers uh, decades earlier for you know, the eventual uh, demolition. So that particular story strikes me as completely insane uh, for many reasons. Right. I mean, what, oh,
1: me too. Yeah. But, you know, actually, it's pretty close to what Heinz Palmer and Franz Franz Roby are saying, the thing like a pre-planted thing under the ground and. Well pre planted is
0: one thing, but but then you know oh, panic panicking out. because the yeah. Pentagon was hit with a controlled
1: demolition yeah. of it that they planted before.
0: Yeah, The notion that something could hit the towers with nuclear bombs on board that wouldn't go off right away, but they might go off later and destroy New York. That's ridiculous. If they're gonna destroy New York, they would go off. Immediately, They wouldn't just sit there in the smoldering, burning towers waiting to go off later and, and then taking the towers down in a demolition would not necessarily solve that problem. I mean, the whole thing is insane.
1: And I, I mean, when I do my re- I mean, as a professional historian and as with a very engineering, very left brain kind of approach to solving problems, I don't trust anybody. <laughs> You know, I use whatever evidence, if it's consistent, I said, well, this is consistent with what I'm coming up with. So maybe this is good. But I don't say, you know, this is the truth or whatever. But together, it makes a pretty powerful story. When you look at all the pieces of evidence, it tends to find place. place. Uh, you know, I said, Joe Viles, I don't know who the heck he is, you know, but if his story is very consistent, well, I'm more likely to believe his story than somebody who has the official story or some other story. So, yeah, I don't. I don't say I'm basing my opinion on Joe Viles or Dmitry Kalasov or anybody else. I just look at the evidence, and to me, the most trustworthy evidence that I have to start with is this cratering uh, evidence that I look at. Right. Um, so you're
0: you're you're watching the official story of the war on terror get cratered, by craters.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm. Uh, maybe <laughs> I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I, I'm at the stage, you know, even though I have like some forty thousand followers I've had for a long time, you know, I, on Twitter. Uh, i don't see that much impact i mean i can't really get a good conversation with anybody you're probably being throttled on twitter i would imagine that i would believe but i don't and i don't know whether you know whether i'll continue to be throttled now but uh that uh i get a lot of you know enough action to keep me keep, keep me doing it but i don't know whether how much spread it actually has or or or, you know what good it does but i i do it because i i enjoy doing it i like it. could could
0: you put that out sort of in a book form or a web page form or something and having it in just a form of tweets is is kind of strange
1: unusual yeah although i get a lot i do have a website the that uh i i have a lot of part books i seem to do this have this penchant for like starting a book about halfway through it you know, moving on to some new ring, brass ring, that looks more interesting to me. But I'm working on a book right now called The Telltale Crater. Uh, And I think I stick with it because a lot of these things that are on Twitter that I have where I'm looking at these incidents with the explosives that have craters there. But there, you know, we're talking about dozens and dozens of these things that are out there going back 100 years. Um, I think that one is the one I will do. I already have three, at least a chapters that i've done on that and I'm, I'm working on another one and then i got sidelined by oh i got annoyed by everybody talking about false flag false flag false flag with russia and uh, the 1999 moments and no russia's fall. and i said it's got to be more to it so i mean it really this stuff i did for russia was just like you know a couple of weeks worth of digging but it was grounded on my understanding of craters and uh that gave me the confidence to like look for, you know, what you know, what fit that kind of explanation that uh, I was coming up with based on my creating analysis. But then the next part of it that we still think was like how do you finger who did it? Which is the hard part. And I generally don't tweet that very much because it's like, okay, now I'm getting into, you know, conjecture. I don't know. For sure. A lot of these incidents who did it. But there's a there is a pattern developing, you know, and it started with uh, it started for me with the the 1983 U.S. Marine barracks bombing that nobody nobody will touch uh, myself. But it's pretty solid historical research and it is on Twitter. It'll be an article, a chapter in this book eventually. But I based on the crater analysis I started looking for. Well, who could done it? And I found so much information, so much evidence pointing the finger at Israel, including the fact that Israel had been the previous occupants of these buildings. They had just abandoned mm-hmm. them before the Marines moved in there. It's like, oh, they had access control to all this. Yeah, this before. was this was before
0: they completely owned the United States. I mean, they, they you know they had a yeah. lot of influence. Oh, but, there was
1: a lot of anger at Israel. Oh, yeah. Of, yeah, Reagan was not happy with you know, and all his advisors, they weren't happy with you Israel. Know,
0: which is the which was the Reagan advisor who said something like, uh, "F the Jews, they don't vote for us anyway." I don't know. That was uh, <laughs> it wasn't James Baker, it was James Baker. Oh, so,
1: Baker, okay, yeah, Secretary yeah. of State there. Yeah. yeah. I, I uh yeah, when you read through the uh the newspaper. I mean, even sticking with the newspaper, like New York Times, you find a lot of animosity toward Israel. Uh and then this miracle, upon miracles, I mean, immediate. Even though I also believe that they were responsible for the destruction of the uh the US embassy in Beirut in April. I haven't really tweeted on that, but uh that one didn't get as much attention in terms of the uh the the damage that was done to it but uh, i found some information that just said yes there was a large crater there plus not just a crater but there is all kind of damage that just wouldn't be caused by a truck bomb
0: you know, so, you know bruce I, i'll bet john f kennedy is like rolling over in his grave or maybe his brain is rolling over in the jar in the skull and bones or wherever it is uh you know because he was dedicated he, he you know he dedicated the last couple of years of his life to trying to stop nuclear proliferation in general and to stop Israel from getting nuclear weapons in particular. So if JFK from the other world is gazing down on planet Earth right now and seeing that the Israelis are getting away with nuking the United States over and over and over, killing hundreds of Marines, blowing up the U.S. Embassy, blowing up the Twin Towers, and on and on and on, um, I think JFK is probably uh, getting a little bit angry. It's like you know some people say, Jesus is coming back, and boy, is he pissed. Well, maybe it'll be JFK coming back, and boy, will he be pissed.
1: You know, and I, uh, I I grew up in New Orleans. I was born and raised in New Orleans, and uh, I came of age in the 1960s there, reading newspapers, reading the Times-Picayune, and reading all this strange stuff about Jim Garrison and the investigation. I was like, what the heck are these people? Dave Ferry, oh, weird, no eyebrows. What is this guy? But I remember reading all of that, and I've always tried to try to make sense of what happened in JFK. But, and I've actually, I have a major research project where I did a lot of oral history of people who were, there are new Lee Harvey Oswald or, you know, or we're in the Civil Air Patrol, which is a big part of the story. They have Dave Ferry, you know, and I have all these you know, the microphones speaking. I got so I could have these interviews with these people and uh, I haven't done much with it because I found a lot of weird stuff. But when I read Michael Collins Piper, you know, book, it was like. Okay, this 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 is it. This puts it all together, all this weird stuff. So I, I always every November, 11, actually November twenty second, which happens to be my birthday. I was seven years old when Kennedy was assassinated. So another wow. aspect That must have been that. a
0: memorable birthday party.
1: Very very somber birthday party. But um, every November twenty second, I I retweet everybody. You should go ahead and read read. Go. What's the name of the book? Michael Connelly. Pop- I should uh, go. Final Judgment. Final Judgment. Yeah, you should read this with all the appendices too. He has all these other is such a rich thing, and I haven't found much to, you know, question it. I mean, from the New Orleans angle, which he does focus a lot on the uh, garrison type of, you know, investigation. Uh, well, Lauren
0: Guyano has uh, kind of confirmed uh, a lot of Piper's research. I read,
1: and and I've read his book, too. And, uh, you know, and I think and I would, too. Everything I know of, and I've researched it a lot, as I haven't published or tweeted much about it, but... I'd say this is a place to start and it, you know, it doesn't have much traction with other people um, who, you know, other type of conspiracy theories about the JFK. It's pretty much on its own. And I remember what that when the when the 50th anniversary, there was just 50 reasons to question the official story. I can't remember who I did. It was like I I showed it in my high school history class. Uh, 50 reasons. This, uh, and Piper's stuff wasn't in that fifty list. Fifty reasons to question the official story. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's, I, I it's, came
0: across it late too. I, I was blaming the CIA uh, from when I first discovered the problem in maybe about '74 when I was in high school, uh, right up through I don't know. I guess the late '90s. I think I first heard about Piper, and, uh, and I had him on the radio show back oh. in maybe 2006 or seven. And uh, I think I my respect for him, you know, increased pretty rapidly. And yeah, I think I think he was definitely barking up the right tree. Yeah. So, yeah, we 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 kind of have a problem here uh, with with this, you know, as Thomas Suarez's book puts it, this state of terror, which has so much influence in the United States, that somebody like Netanyahu, this master criminal who probably uh, blew up the Twin Towers, killed thousands of Americans, gets uh, a standing ovation in Congress, you know, shows up in Congress. And when Obama, the president, tried to talk to Congress, he got a chilly reception from a lot of the Congress critters. Which is okay with me, but then when Netanyahu went in front of Congress, they all were compelled to leap up and, and give him a standing ovation, a standing ovation after standing ovation.
1: Twenty-three within a forty minutes. I think it was only like a quarter of the thing was actually talking; the rest of it was applause and ovation. Yeah, I, I, I included that little that's video pathetic. on my uh, on my thread there because it's always, <laughs> but the, you know, that's the other part of the story in terms of going after Israel. Israel is, as far as I can tell, the five. States, Five nuclear states invented these kind of third generation or they, they invented the neutron bomb. All five of them admit they invented the neutron bomb. But If you invent the neutron bomb, you can invent all these other types of third generation nukes, including clean nukes. And the five were the United States first, Soviet second. Israel was third, then France and China. So all five of them had the ability back in the 80s. They did had the ability and they did make these kind of third generation nukes back then. Who so ha- it had to be one of those five suspects, but you don't That's have to be to have to have to have 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 of those. Uh, so so <laughs> when you look at which of the five did it on this Russian thread where I first had to deal with Russia. Well, could Russia have done it? Russia in nineteen ninety nine. Would they still have this kind of nuke that they were doing with to keep up with the United States back in the early eighties and the Soviet Union's falling apart and it's all you know, Bruce, we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna have to leave this as an unsolved
0: mystery. Huh? <laughs> Such as it right. is. And also, last thing is we voted
1: Israel benefited from all of this. It, it, yeah. Russia changed completely with Israel.
0: Putin became. It,
1: Putin.
0: Everybody hates the Muslims. Time for a war on Islam. Okay, well, thank you so much for Barrett. It's, it's always great talking well. to, to you. God bless. Great work, and I'll hopefully bring it back at some point. All right. Thank you. Yeah.